Hi, I'm Carolyn Rupsich and I'm on John Littlefair's podcast, Never Just a Jock. It's amazing to be able to record this episode with you. Yeah, I've been wanting to do this for a while and, yeah, now here it is. We've known each other effectively for most of our lives. Absolutely. And we grew up on a farm about, well, probably about five miles away from each other. Yeah, and I used to sit next to me on the school bus and being one of the older boys on the bus, I was always a little bit intimidated and and felt a bit scared I was going to fall over on the way as I got off the bus before your farm. We didn't know each other that well, but then I did go to school with your brothers eventually. So you were on a potato farm, I was on a potato farm, literally just up the road from each other, but in a sense worlds apart. What was life like for you growing up on a potato farm with your family? I think... Looking back now, I think it was magical and probably when I was younger, I felt like we're isolated, we live out of town, we have to amuse ourselves, we can't see our friends after school, we've got to get the bus home. There were so many kind of disadvantages that I saw of living on a farm but then so many great things too where we, you know, we learnt to drive when we were 11 or 12 and we you know, would go swimming in the dam and we had this freedom that you wouldn't have if you were living in a city or living in a town and we could just do our own thing and ride motorbikes around and play with the dog and go swimming with the dog. So, yeah, we just had this, you know, lovely life and also my grandparents lived on the farm as well. So so my grandfather, my Croatian grandfather, was one of the sort of original settlers in the area and so he he sort of felled the trees on the farm and cleared the farm and and they lived in a house probably 100 metres away from us. So that was actually very special to have my grandparents so close and, you know, just get to see them so regularly and be such a part of each other's lives. So... Yeah, so so now in you know in my older years I feel like it it was an absolute joy and and it was I think just as a teenager I wanted I wanted to do other things so but I was very you know I'm sort of one of four children and the youngest and I was very independent I was always kind of doing something on my own because the others were off doing their own thing and and I I loved that there was always something to do always something to do and you said that you had a dog on the farm. Was was your dog's name Lindy Lou? <laughs> she was. She was. What breed was Lindy Lou? Uh, she's a corgi. And I don't even know how my parents came to have or to decide to have a corgi as a farm dog. But we did have a corgi before her called Bobby um, and unfortunately I was too little. I don't really remember what happened, but I think something happened to her. And um, so then we got Lindy Lou 
and she was just the most magical, beautiful little, you know, barrel on legs because uh, she was she was quite the eater and um, she she was just beautiful. She would come and meet us off the school bus, but she knew there was a certain point that she wasn't allowed to go past. She wasn't allowed to go up to the main road. She could only go to, you know, halfway up the, the path and she would just run around with us, you know, walking home. She would wait outside for everyone to get home from, you know, if mum was at work or dad was out still working, Lindy would know and she would wait outside and until everyone was home and then she'd be okay to go around the back and, and, and be on the veranda and just know that her family were home. So, so she was very much an outside dog. We were, you know, we're of the generation that dogs are not inside, even though she, you know, she was a, um, fairly well to do breed <laughs> for a farm dog. She would still, you know, roll in cow poo and, roll in dead animals and she would love it and the stinkier the better you know she she was not a princess by any means (laughs) (laughs) lindy lou lived with you and your family on the farm for quite some years so yeah so lindy lou was very special and she um she was very sensitive in that you you know the back step of our house is is very significant actually and so that's you would walk out of the near the kitchen to the to the veranda and then there was a a laundry sort of a, like a little part of the house that was separated but the back step was the point where if you felt sick you would go and sit there if you felt upset you would sit there and Lindy was always there and she would always come up and and you know, stick her nose under your arm and and nuzzle you and just be with you because she knew something was wrong. So, yeah, she was a very very intuitive dog. Very um, didn't like little kids. She was actually quite snappy with them, <laughs> but um, very protective and and you know, loved chasing the cows and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think we must have had her from you know when I was, I don't know under 10 and then uh, when I was in my teens I got quite sick with a blood disorder and I had to I had to go to hospital and I had to have all this kind of investigation and ended up having surgery and and was was really sick so in my recovery time, I actually also had to go back to hospital and ended up going to very local, the local Pemberton Hospital to, to kind of recuperate, I guess. And during that time, my, my parents would come to visit me and on one of those occasions, my dad, my mum and dad came to tell me that they had had to put Lindy down because she she had some heart issues she had a you know she had a um, hip problem she had you know arthritis in her hip and she she was starting to suffer so I was just horrified that I was going home and she wouldn't be there and 
so I never got to see her or say goodbye to her and she I just was kind of whisked away to this for this problem that I had and then when I eventually got back my dog was gone and I was angry with my dad you know I was like how could you do that but I know how much he loved her and he did it for her so what it what a decision you know to keep your daughter happy or keep your dog well and feeling okay so I understand it now but at the time I was you know I I still think about her and think about not being able to say goodbye to her uh, was a huge thing for me. Let's talk about your early career. I decided uh, very at a very young age that I wanted to become a biomedical scientist and I don't really know why, but I had a look in a careers book and thought, well, that looks good. <laughs> I'll, um, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> and I weirdly then got the blood disorder just, you know, kind of a year later. So really then that cemented it for me that this is what I want to do because this is, this is kind of what's happening to me and, and I want to know more about it. So, so yeah, so finished school went off to university and studied biomedical science and then worked um, in Perth and then decided to go back to the country because that, you know, that's what I was used to. So I went and lived out in the country for a while and kind of worked in a big regional hospital and then also a couple of kind of local local sort of smaller hospitals. I would go and, and be the relief scientist there. So this is in my early 20s and, yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, I really, you know, probably that independence from the farm served me well when I kind of just took myself off to a place I'd never been before and took this job and started my life in a different place. So, you know, eight hours away from my family and but it was it was good for me. I knew that it was a positive thing to do, and I would learn a lot. So, so then I went. Eventually, decided you know to give up that job and go back to Perth. Uh, I can't even remember why, but I went back to Perth and and started working for a, a different hospital group. And that's when I met a really good friend of mine, who loved to travel and I'd always had it in my mind that, you know, because of my heritage and because I just had this feeling that I, I, I needed to go. I'd never been anywhere. I'd, I think I'd been to Melbourne once and that was it. So I thought at some stage I want to go travelling. So anyway, when I met this friend, he kind of encouraged me to go travelling with him and he was actually, he has a sister who lives in Italy and she was getting married and he said, well, why don't you come with me and we'll go to the wedding and then we'll go travelling in Europe together. And this would have been May 1995. And I knew I wanted to go, but for some reason I didn't feel right about going right then. So so he left and I stayed and I said, you know, I'll, I'll definitely come sometime next year and I don't even know what what that feeling was but 
uh, as it turned out, my dad passed away very suddenly at the end of 1995. I was there with my mum and we were with him just before he passed away and it was hugely traumatic and but I also know that I I couldn't have not been there. I if I was overseas I would probably still be there now because I wouldn't believe it. I wouldn't actually have the belief that this had actually happened. So yeah, so then you know and dad my dad knew that I wanted to go overseas and go travelling and go and visit the home country and but once that happened, I just thought, I, there's no way I can leave my family. I can't leave my mum. I can't even go back to Perth and go back to work. I, well, you know, not that I wanted to, but it was just changed everything because the worst thing that could possibly happen had happened and, and we had no warning and there was just, it was, it was just incredibly devastating and time stood still for days on end. And it just, I kept thinking he was just around the corner and that he was coming back and I was very much denying that he was gone and there were so many elements to that that were really difficult and I, yeah, I just didn't deal with it well at all. I just couldn't fathom the fact that I was just with my dad and then an hour later I'm being told that he's passed away and from a heart attack. And I just was like, that's not true, that's not possible, we just saw him. Uh, no, that's, you know, that that can't, that just can't happen, that doesn't happen. So, and he is this, you know, huge, beautiful man in my life that is suddenly gone. Everything changed from that point, you know, for the rest, for, to this day, my life has changed from that moment. And my family encouraged me to still go overseas. They kept saying, you know, Dad wanted to come and visit you. Mum and Dad were going to come and visit you and go, you know, go travelling in Europe. And he really would have wanted you to, to still go. And I just didn't know what to do. But by May the 1990s, so he, he passed away in December 95, just after Christmas. Uh, which is a really tough, difficult time forever now. And then by May the next year, kind of pretty much to the day that I was meant to leave with Craig, I was on a plane going to meet up with him and everything was great. You know, my family were very supportive and then I get to the airport and my mum just fell apart and I fell apart and I got on the plane and I just cried all the way to London and thought, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? I have no conscious thought about why I was doing it. I just knew that I was going. So there I was, 1996, living on the other side of the world from my family. What did the early months look like and feel like for you? The early months were interesting because, you know, I arrived in London on the 16th of May. I figured it's 
you know, I had no no clue about London. I thought it's nearly summer, it'll be warm. You know, the day I arrived it was six degrees and I had completely the wrong clothes on. <laughs> um, you know, I'd travelled from Perth to Bali to London and it was it was freezing and I just it was just a completely foreign world and you know, I actually in the first couple of weeks I was there I got the chicken pox and you know, I was run down and I was tired and I had all these kind of health issues that happened and and it was just kind of brought it my body, I think releasing the stress and being in a foreign place, I was like, no one knows me here and no one knows my story and no one I can just be completely anonymous and almost pretend that my dad is still at home so that's pretty much what I did and I just you know eventually got a job and carried on and the first Christmas that I was there uh, my friend again wanted me to go to Italy to be with his family and I just decided that I couldn't do that. This is my first, this is the first anniversary of my dad passing away. I needed to be on my own and it was almost like a punishment. My family were far, we were far away from each other, but I really, I couldn't join in anyone else's Christmas because I had nothing to give to anyone. I had no joy. I had no, I just needed to be on my own and that's exactly what I did. And my family were concerned but I just, you know, I talked to them and I, you know, they sent me photos and but it just it just was the right thing to do for me. When you went to live in London, did you work as a medical scientist? I did, yeah. I worked, um, I was a locum biomedical scientist and then it was it was great, you know, because Australians are very uh, respected in that field and mainly because your training was very multidisciplinary so you could work in a lab where you could do everything. So I um, found it really easy to get work and got some really incredible jobs actually working for some some in some amazing fields and but, you know, actually in the very first year of being in London, I didn't really like it very much and I I didn't feel like I wanted to stay there. And I had an ancestry visa through my through my grand my um, English grandmother, who we called Baba. So I had a four year visa, so I I could stay for as long as I liked. And I thought, you know, this really isn't for me. But then my mum came over, and we did that European trip together that we had planned to do with dad and we just yeah we just traveled together and we you know did kind of like a group tour and and just had a a great time going to all these you know to Paris and Venice and all these beautiful amazing places that my mum had never I'd never been to my mum had never been to so it was it was incredible to share that with her and and that was meant to be with dad too so, but just before my mum came over, um, I met 
someone in London and and I wasn't sure that I wanted to stay in London but there was something in me that said you need to you need to see how this goes and I ended up falling in love with London and ended up living there for nearly 18 years which blows my mind because I just had to create my whole new world. I didn't know anyone. Everything changed and then all of a sudden I was just, no one else is going to be there holding your hand. You've got to just get on and, and make this your world or you don't. And and I just ended up meeting the most amazing, incredible people in my jobs in, you know, very, very multicultural world just it opened my world up completely and before I knew it um (laughs) it's 2014 and I'm coming home and I never actually thought I would come home when you're living in London were there pets on the radar did you have a cat or a dog no because I am the original commitment phobe which makes me laugh because I always say that, you know, I never got married, I didn't have children, I didn't have any pets because I would never actually formally commit to something and yet I ended up living in London for that length of time. So I'm a, I'm a default committer to things. So <laughs> um, it just kind of happens to me and so, no, I didn't have any pets and but I would always you know I've always been a lover of dogs and and cats and you know other people's pets of course I would always love their pets I'm kind of that person and you know I'm I, I I love your pet because it's I don't have to look after it so um that's kind of where I was in the you know commitment zone in pets and and people and life <laughs> <laughs> So you make your way back to Western Australia to one of the most famous wine regions in the world, Margaret River. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I'd always loved this region. I'd been here with my mum and dad as, you know, when we were kids, they would bring us over here and, you know, we'd go wine tasting, not us personally, but my parents. Uh, <laughs> and you drove, the, did... you drove the car home for mum and dad. <laughs> But, you know, being European background, we were, you know, wine was a part of a meal and we, my grandparents, we'd go up to visit them and they would give us some wine. It was, it was, it was part of the experience. It wasn't uh, that it was an alcoholic drink or that it, it was something special that was part of the, the joy of having a meal together. So, so yeah, Margaret River was always really special and I, you know, growing up on a farm, coming to the beach, you know, was just incredible and this beautiful place, this farming community that was, you know, surfers and really laid back and just an incredible place. So you moved to Margaret River and you're in a new relationship. Tell me about that. So yeah, I'm living in Margaret River and I'm I'm working in the wine industry and I've kind of gone through this journey of of getting back to very close to what I used to do in the medical world but now in the wine world. So 
so it's all come together and everything is is how it is meant to be and so you know I have my own house and and I'm loving going to the beach and I love having this lifestyle and I'm in a new relationship but then one day that all just gets pulled out from under me and I don't see it coming and I don't expect it and and it's 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 hard to explain it's it there's some kind of PTSD thing that happens to me and all of a sudden I'm dealing with that grief loss again that feeling of I how did I not know this could happen how did how did it just happen to me and I wasn't aware that this was going to happen so so of course in that time there was a lot of reflective going back to dealing with the grief that I'd had with my dad that I probably hadn't dealt with for 27 years you know I um, all of a sudden had to deal with both of those things and threw me really down to my lowest point and because I had to face it now and you know there was there was not really a lot of light at that point but my job was something that was always there and my colleague that I work with she she her and I are very good friends and she was always there for me and always caring for me and so she slowly started to ask me to to look after her cats. Uh, she had these two beautiful rescue cats, and you know I never uh, that thing about being a cat person or a dog person, which I think is kind of ridiculous. I just had never had a cat, but my grandma had had loads of cats on the farm, and my baba, and she. She was the rescue lady, so so people would abandon their cats up on the highway, and she would take them in, and she would look after them. So she had, you know, at some stage, had something like fifteen cats on the farm, and feeding all of them, and looking after them. So something clicked in my head about my friend at work, my colleague. She's we're close, so I wanted to. I, I actually. She framed it that I was going to be helping her out by looking after the, her cats. So I did, you know, and I went over there and I, she had it all laid out exactly what I had to do. And I'm a, I'm kind of a very attention to detail person, so I need to know exactly is this right? Am I doing this right? Am I, you know, I don't want to end up doing the wrong thing for these cats. But what, it, you know, what it actually gave to me was this amazing feeling of these animals are relying on me to look after them. Their animals, are, their parents are away and they need me to look after them and they also, I get to have a bit of cuddle time and one of, one of the cats is very scared, very timid and, you know, when she would come to me, mainly for food, <laughs> was just a breakthrough moment that wow you know these animals trust me there's something about the fact that I can 
be there with them and they they trust me and they they feel safe so so from that point on I loved looking after those cats and so my colleague would constantly be on the websites at work and saying what about this cat you need to get a cat just get a cat and I was like no I don't want to get a cat and she just kept on and on and on at me and she would show me pictures of kittens and I would say, yeah, they're beautiful and I would see certain pictures and think, yeah, they're amazing, but I, I, I don't, I can't commit to that. I, I can't commit to having a cat. I can't, you know, I'm not worthy kind of thing. And then Nala came into your life. How did that happen? Well, I think because she kind of worn me down quite a lot. I, I didn't want to go ahead with something that she suggested for me necessarily. So I did keep looking and I was just watching, you know, certain things on, on, um, social media. And then I saw this cat called Nala, who was an older cat who had kidney problems. And she, I just saw her and I instantly knew that she needed to. I needed to be with her and she needed to be with me and there was this feeling that she's she's older and she has health problems so no one will want her and and I I'm always the champion of the underdog you know I want I don't want anyone to feel abandoned or left so you know my colleague had also said to me perhaps you should be a foster carer and I was thinking no I'd, I you know because that's not a commitment like I don't know if I could do that and so when I when I saw Nala I thought yeah I can do that she's an older cat I can stay completely detached I can look after her I can give her you know a good end of her life I won't be upset when she goes it it will just be something kind that I can do for her yeah so I went and met her she didn't she wasn't overly friendly she I was, you know, she kind of came up and I gave her some treats and, but it was a bit awkward and I came home and I was actually really upset thinking this cat doesn't like me and this is, this is stupid. What am I doing? I don't, like, I don't, she doesn't want me. She wants to stay where she is. Anyway, I just went ahead with it. I kind of like going to London. I just thought, okay, just, just have a trial two weeks with her and, so when I went to pick her up, it was so traumatic because her foster carer was upset, I was upset, Nala was upset. <laughs> I just felt like I was taking someone's cat away from them. And But once I got her home, she just, you know, sniffed around and she made herself at home and before I knew it, I was completely in love with her. She, Well, I was in love with her when I first saw her with her little ballet feet and she just became a bit like my mentor she was feisty she was independent she didn't take any crap from anyone she she was her own lady and I really admired that about her and and I think there was something in me that was like you've always thought you're this really independent person but actually you're not this Nala is teaching you these things right now and she, you know, she taught me about boundaries. She taught me about that's enough love. I don't need any more at the moment. Just like we just had this 
beautiful, beautiful relationship and I would come home and she would meow at me and and she was solely reliant on me and I, for the first time, committed to something, committed to someone properly, consciously committed to her, to look after her because no one else, there's no one else, no one else was going to do that. So, yeah, I, I very much fell in love with her and and I think it was easier for me knowing she had some health problems because I knew which food I had to give her. I didn't have any choices. I just had to give her this food, take her to the vet, you know, do these things. And I'm kind of a that kind of person where I feel like if I I can't just wing it, you know, I need to know what what I need to do. So so that's what I did. How did Nala change your life? She actually brought me a reason to to come home. My house had always felt quite empty and and knowing that she was here and coming home to her made my house a home. And she was my family for the you know, my my dependent family. Some creature that was dependent on me and I've never had that before so you know the first time I saw her just laying on the um on the sofa with her legs up completely relaxed was just you know amazing that she trusts me and she's she feels safe and she's comfortable here and she gave me so much confidence in who I thought I never was you know to be able to look after another human being so she didn't have any choice you know and yet she was completely comfortable with me and yeah sorry are they galahs in the background going off they are yeah they fly over yeah kind of certain times of day. Nala, Nala wouldn't even be able to chase them because she <laughs> she would look at them, but she's just too old to, to be jumping up and, and bothering. But they're like 50 feet in the air and they're going 100 miles <laughs> an hour. How, how are you going to even be able to grab them? I know, but as a cat, you think you can do anything. So. Oh, even as a human, but I oh, know my limitations. Yeah. Towards the end of 2022, there's some devastating news with Nala that she's very sick. Yeah, and it's devastating news, but but you also know that she she had uh, renal issues to start with, but then things start to suddenly turn turn for the worse and start to pick up on things that are happening, and you know she's weighing outside of the litter and she's weighing blood and. So I actually take her to my really good friend who's a vet and that you've actually interviewed, Michelle Doney. She's incredible. So she, you know, she does some checks on her and says, you know, I can feel a lump, but we're not, I'm not really sure what it is and, you know, bring her back in a, in a week or so and, and we'll, we'll, we'll check it out. Anyway, so, so we go ahead with, uh, her checking her over and the lump's still there and we have an x-ray and 
she's we find that Nala has a tumor in her bladder and it's in the neck of her bladder and it's inoperable and she's 15 she's old and she has renal chronic renal failure so her kidneys are calcified and there's really at this point nothing that we can do apart from give her some pain medication to relieve some of her pain and for me to just give her all the food that she loves and all the love that she needs and know that this is actually a really special thing. It's My heart is breaking but also I can have this time with her very consciously and know that she's going to pass away and I need to be present with her and not run away from this, which... I have had in the you know, have done in the past. So every moment with her was precious. Every photo, every video, every time I played the guitar to her, which she didn't like that much. Every every moment I'm with her, and it's probably the biggest gift I could have been given from Nala: the chance to say goodbye and the chance to grieve this beautiful soul while she was still here. So it was just in the end, Nala, you know, I kind of wanted to to wait until she was unwell enough to let me know that she couldn't cope anymore and I, I wanted her to pass away on her own but that wasn't the case and... In the last few days of her life, she just, she wouldn't eat. She wasn't drinking. She was kind of meowing, crying. She was sitting in the shower. She was just, she'd lost the ability to even, you know, grab me with her paws like she would, you know, when she was a feisty girl. And, and so I had to make that very hard decision to take her and euthanize her with with Michelle and Michelle was the most beautiful person I could have hoped to be with to be in that situation with it was so hard and I I I don't I still question myself now that did I make the right decision because it, in hindsight you look back and think, oh, she would have been okay for a bit longer. But it's it's exactly the situation my dad had with Lindy. He couldn't wait for me to come home and say goodbye to her. He needed to give her the peace that she needed and that's exactly how I felt about Nala and it a- absolutely broke my heart. So my plan to not get too close to her didn't work. <laughs> She she was part of me, completely part of me and part of my grandmother and part of my dad and just my first pet of my own that I was absolutely in love with and taught me a lot about myself. What were the days like after Nala passed away? Uh the hardest thing, of course, is coming home and she's not meowing at me and she's not there and 
she's not sleeping in my bed with me and she you know I don't feel her jump up on the bed in the night and but also the decision to what what do you do once your pet passes away I I'd never experienced this before because we grew up on a farm and you know it, it was kind of back in the era of you bury the the dog on the farm you that's kind of normal life on a farm and and here I was with Nala not knowing what I what to do and and I wanted to bury her in the garden of my house because she still loved being out there and but but actually it wasn't practical in terms of you know being in town and so it was a really hard decision to to know what to do and it's you know there's expense there's you don't want to feel that you're not spending the money on your pet that they deserve but also it's it's a, it's a really you know you're in a you were in a world of grief and you're having to make decisions about what you're going to do for your pet and i remember when she was being euthanized that you know when she was having her fur um shaved off her paw for the sedation for the first sedation I just remember thinking I really want I would I really want to have her fur because her paws are so important to me they were the first thing I noticed about her and but I didn't want to ask that I didn't want to say can I have her fur because it felt weird and it felt morbid and yeah I felt really alone in what do I do what what do I do if she she dies in my house when I'm here what I do, I I guess being on your own it's a very hard thing to know what is the right thing to do so I I fully understand that for anyone with their pet what what can you afford to do what what will honor them what what if you don't do the thing that you know people have their pet cremated and get the ashes back what if you can't afford to do that is that does that mean that you don't love your pet that much it's it's a really really difficult thing you you're grieving your pet but you also have to decide monetarily how how you remember them or how you have them still in your life and it's it's difficult it's very difficult and yeah i i i don't you know i wouldn't ever tell anyone what they should do in those circumstances being on a farm you know there's kind of an easier choice but but life is different now you know when you're growing up in a farm you didn't you didn't take the pets to the vet you you know it was a different time then it was a different era something i do want to mention so when i got nala she that was her name and i you know they ask you if you want to change her name or not and i thought oh nala's a beautiful name i probably would never have come up with that so i i love to rhyme things so i decided that she would be nala banana and when we were kids you know with my dad we dad was dad was musical and he would always have you know music in the house and he played you know played in a band and so we had some old records and one of the people that we used to listen to was uh, Nana Muscuri so i just crowned her Nala Banana Muscuri and 
and that just seemed the perfect name, the perfect name <laughs> for her. And I, you know, when I've been to my mum's house, I've, I've gone through the records and found the Nala, the, the Nana Muskuri records, and and I have them near my pictures of Nala now. That um, there's pictures of her all around the house, and and Nana Muskuri, you know, I played her Christmas record on Christmas Day. For my dad, there's a picture of my dad and there's a picture of Nala together near Nana Muscuri. So that's really special that I've got his old records and and just, um, yeah, you know, it's kind of my dad's sense of humour as well. He would love that. So, so yeah, that's a little in-joke, in dad joke, you know, Nala Banana Muscuri. <laughs> I love that and um, we grew up just down the road listening to Nana Muscuri as well. Yeah, and Demis Roussos. And Demis, Demis Roussos. <laughs> and Kamal. Kamal. Oh, definitely Kamal. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and Tijuana Brass, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. That was my dad, one of my dad's favourite bands. And was it from Hatari, Baby Elephant Walk? Yeah. And one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is so so one of the things that people would say to me about Nala was why did you why did you take on an older cat? You knew she wasn't well and why would you why wouldn't you get a kitten? And and I my response is because no one like I could see that no one was Everyone was saying, oh, she's beautiful and she's this and she's that, but no one wanted to take her. And for me, that was heartbreaking and I just knew that I I want to take her and I want however long we have together. And as it turned out, we only had, I think it was like 10 months together. But she changed everything about my life. She gave me the biggest gift ever she she turned so many things around for me and so then the next question that I'm being asked by people is so are you going to get another cat you're getting another cat like a replacement uh, another cat and I was like no I I Nala's very special and I can't replace her and I don't want to think about that at this point so when people are asking me, are you getting another cat? Are you getting a replacement cat, essentially, is what they're saying. I'm like, no, you know, Nala was incredibly special and, you know, I need to grieve her and I need time to grieve her. And But something happens very quickly for me and the same website that I, was, that I saw Nala on, I see another older cat, safe is an amazing organisation. They are, stands for Saving Animals from Euthanasia. They're all volunteers. They are incredibly amazing people. The foster carers, I'm very close to Jane, who was Nala's foster carer. I'm close to now other people that I've come across. And, yeah, they're, they're an amazing group of people. So, so I see this older cat again and no one wants her and she's ten and a half she's not sick but she is older and she's I just my heart just goes out to her and I think 
okay, this is my mission now. This is my, this is what I need to do. And I need to, I need to take her and I need to look after her because, you know, who looks after older people when they're alone and who looks after older pets when, you know, like there's, I don't know, there's something that hits, strikes a chord with me about that. So I uh, contact SAFE and say I would love to meet this cat and they put me in touch with the foster carers and it turns out they have COVID so they can't, we can't do a meet and greet, which, you know, because you, you get this offer that you have to contact them within five days and so we can't do that. And then I say, well, that's fine, you know, it's kind of over Christmas time. It's only two weeks since Nala passed away. I can't even believe I'm doing this. But I know it's not about me, it's about this cat that needs a home who's been in foster care for five months. So I wait and I hear from the foster carers and I get this beautiful message saying, Carolyn, we're so sorry, we've decided that we want to keep her, we just can't let her go. Um, we're, we're considered a foster fail, which I think is a weird term because that is what you want for this animal. You want them to be loved and looked after. So that is not a foster fail for me. That is, that is the end result that everyone wants. So I was incredibly happy for them. And, and I love the fact that, you know, perhaps me showing some interest made them realize we don't want to lose her. So it didn't, it didn't affect me in a way that I thought, on oh, you know, poor me, whatever. It was just like that's actually exactly what I wanted to happen. But but then what also happened is Safe, the beautiful lady that is in contact with me at Safe, said, you know, we have this other cat who hasn't been advertised yet, and she's she was found. She's a stray. She's a, she's a wild cat. She didn't have a family she's not microchipped she wasn't neutered none of those things and she's been living with a vet nurse since they picked her up from the pound a few months ago and would you be interested in meeting her and I so I I didn't I didn't have a photo of her I didn't know anything about her apart from her age they were estimating kind of between one and three she's a girl she's had now had all her you know checks and 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 um safe things that they do and I was like absolutely I would love to meet her they were saying her name's Sooty my my baba my grandma who she would always call her cat Suki and so I just, yeah, I knew that I wanted to go and meet her. And so a week ago today, <laughs> I met her. She's terrified. She's timid. She's, you know, she's living in one room in the house with the foster carers. They have another cat. She's this terrified little gorgeous being. And, and yet she let me, you know, she came out into her bed and she let me pat her and, and I just fell in love with her instantly. I saw her eyes. She has Nala's eyes. And I feel like, I absolutely feel like Nala sent her to me that, you know, that now it's time for you to have 
a cat that you can grow old with because I I absolutely wish that I'd had Nala from the beginning, which doesn't make sense because I've lived overseas. I couldn't possibly have done that. But I wish I just wish I knew Nala as a as a younger cat. I wish I'd had her all of my life and and now I've got this gorgeous scared terrified little girl who is coming out of his shell and so I decided to call her Violet and so her the shortening of her name is Lottie and I was telling my sisters about her and sending photos through and my elder sister said I think she's been sent to you from from Bubba who used to rescue all the cats and she said to me um her favorite flowers were violets and that's something I didn't know and I was just blown away and felt incredibly close to her and incredibly close to my dad who also loved cats and just thought it's it's just meant to be it's absolutely meant to be and Nala is part of all of this she she's the reason she's the reason I can't thank you enough for sharing your journey with me and I can't wait to hear more about your journey with Lottie, a continued love. Thank you. It's really overwhelming to to share this with the world or to share this with people, but it's also really important for me. It's important for Nala. It's important for elderly people, elderly cats, elderly animals that we all need love. We all need someone to care for us. And we, you know, if, if that's, that's my, my role, I feel like this is where I'm meant to be.